All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 6. We're going to read these verses here in just a minute. Last week, uh, we focused primarily on verse number 3, and uh, just kind of review that a little bit as we get into the lessons tonight here in a few minutes. Um, uh, but again, there's so much in this uh, passage. Uh, I, could, <laughs> I could spend really the next three or four weeks just on these three verses. I'm going to try to go as deep as I can, but at the same time, get through what we need to get through tonight. Uh, this passage of Scripture, really, verses 3... Uh, through 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, all the way through 14. Uh, these 11 and 12 verses are really one long sentence in the Greek. And uh, we've broken them up, obviously, uh, in our text with the verses and the verse breakdown. Uh, but when we study the scriptures, we need to understand uh, things in the context of the passage that we're reading. Uh, this is one of those passages of scriptures that many people have taken out of context. Uh, this is a uh, heavy uh, passage of scripture for those that believe in the uh, Calvinist approach, and we'll, we'll hit on that a little bit tonight, but that's not what the topic of the series is on tonight, but we have to be careful in taking verses out of context. That's the, the main thing I want to emphasize tonight a little bit, because it's very easy to make a verse say what you want it to say. We have to study the surrounding passages to really understand uh, what the writer was trying to get across and what the writer was trying to apply. At the same time, Scripture never contradicts itself. We must understand that. Scripture never contradicts itself because when someone says, well, this says that, but then this says something else, we have to see what they're all trying to say because it's never contradictory, never at all. Uh, but again, before we get to that tonight, uh, again, talking about identity. Identity is, has become a hot topic in our culture over the last really decade, two decades in our society. Uh, one definition of identity is this, the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. One of the biggest struggles today is not just our identity, but the source of our identity. And again, what we're trying to discover is that the source of our identity as a Christian is who, or should be who? Jesus. All right, I had one person say that. One person has gotten something so far. So who should be the source of our identity, church? Jesus. Jesus. Very good. Thanks for getting it started, Venetia. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, but yes, Jesus Christ should be the source of our identity. So that means everything should flow out of our relationship with him. And even as we've talked about in our Sunday morning series and excited to get back into that in the next couple weeks, uh, but so often we view things from a cultural standpoint instead of a biblical standpoint. And we're trying to line up to what the culture is telling us to do instead of what Christ is telling us to do from his word. And really authentic biblical Christianity is what we're trying to achieve and, and aspire to have in our church. Really just, I know it's a foreign concept, just trying to get back to the Bible but it really is kind of a radical concept in today's day and age. Um, but really, when you, when you think about it, it's not, it's not really that radical at all. But when you, when you become an authentic biblical Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ, a, a disciple of him in all areas and aspects of your life, it truly changes your life for the good. It brings you joy and peace and abundance, and, and you truly discover what it means to thrive and flourish, as we've been trying to hit on for the past several weeks in Sundays. You know, the world around us is very fluid. What I mean by this is that they're always looking for something new to focus on. Uh, this series really isn't about this, but, you know, gender identity has become a problem in our society and culture. It's a perfect example of the concept of fluid identity because it's ever-changing. It seems like every year there's a new thing that is added to that list of gender identity. But really, when we focus back on scriptures and what scriptures say, we understand that there are two genders, right? There's male and female. That's it. Not anything and everything else, but again, even Christians are getting confused by this because they're buying into the philosophy of the world 
instead of what Jesus Christ has already established before the foundation of the world. He's already established this in the very beginning. So we must take everything uh, according to what Scripture says and teaches. And uh, I think when I first came, I did a, a small series uh, on Sunday nights on, um, in, in the book of Genesis. And we only made it through the first, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten chapters, I think it was. But uh, a lot of people, they take their worldview from everything after Genesis 12, which they don't believe in creation, even Christians. And you can't do that. You have to realize that the whole Bible is, is fully inspired of God and it's all profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But again, our identity will continue to be shaken and altered until we understand who we are in God. We can't understand who we are in God if we're more fixated on a world and a culture that opposes the truth. And so often we're more concerned with what our culture thinks of us than what we are, what our Savior thinks of us. And that's the most important thing I really want to try to get across in this study and in this series on Wednesday night. You know, when Paul got saved, his life was forever changed, was it not? Uh, he got a new identity, and his identity wasn't uh, necessarily the same. It was rewritten. The moment you get saved, your identity is rewritten because you're no longer yours. You're now his. You're his. You're Christ. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We should be changed and, and be changing into the image of Jesus Christ. But so often I've seen so many Christians that really are changing more into the image of themselves instead of the image of Jesus Christ. And again, we're going to continue to talk about identity throughout this message and really throughout this series. And I have a, a kind of an illustration I want to read at the very end of the message tonight. A little lengthy uh, illustration, but it kind of ties in with the, the message tonight and what we're talking about. But again, Ephesians, yeah, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is really one long sentence in the Greek. And we're going to look at some words tonight that scare many Christians. <laughs> because many of these words have been taken completely out of context. I want to quickly say that many people lump themselves into a theological system. And there are two very common theological systems in our world today. There's people that have the view of Calvinism which originates from John Calvin, and then people have the view from uh, James Arminius or Arminian. I want you to understand that I am neither. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. And this church holds the stand of we're not a Calvinist church. We're not an Arminian church. And people say all the time when, I, when I've discussed that and debated that with people, well, if you're not a Calvinist, you're an Arminian. No, that's not true. Uh, I try to just follow what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. And I even talked to someone a couple of years ago about this and Again, I'm not going to go deep into this tonight, but I basically said, oh, I'm just a biblicist. I just try to follow what the Bible says. Well, well, I am too. Well, no, you're not when you're not following all of Scripture. And what we try to do in this church and what this pastor will try to do until Jesus comes back is follow what the Scripture says, all of the Scripture, not just some of the Scripture. So we need to understand when we study words like we're going to study tonight, chosen, elect, predestination, different things like that, some people have taken it completely out of context and aren't really understanding what it's talking about. And I want to try to dumb it down as best I can, but still give you enough uh, biblical basis and understanding of what these words are talking about. As a Christian, as a church, we believe in terms like chosen and elect and predestinated before the foundation of the world. These carry important biblical truths that cannot be denied, ignored, or refuted. But we also believe in words like all, all men, whosoever, any. That's important as well. All of these terms that Paul is addressing here is completely rewriting 
who he is in Jesus Christ. And before I really begin tonight, before I dig into this message, who is Paul addressing in this first chapter in Ephesians and throughout this whole book? Who is Paul addressing? Who is he writing to, I guess I should say? The church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus is filled up with saints, Christians, right? So again, he's not writing to the lost. He's writing to the Christian. He's writing to those that are saved. So tonight, I want us to look at verses 3 through 6 and try to our best to define who we are in Christ. And last week, we talked about the blessings that we have. And really, over the next several weeks, what we're going to look about is this, how rich we are in Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, we are very rich. Maybe not in the definition of the world standard, but in his standard, we're very rich, very wealthy. And some things tonight that we're even going to hit on shows us just how rich, how well off we are. So what we're doing is defining who we are in Christ. First and foremost, and again, very briefly tonight, verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Remember, there's a couple phrases that I focused on last week. That word in the middle, all, and then that last two words in verse three, in Christ. We get all of the blessings because of Jesus Christ. Once we get saved, once we've accepted him as our Savior, he doesn't withhold anything from us. It's kind of like that last illustration I gave last week about, in a sense, we have a spiritual buffet of blessings. And I'm going to start off with that to make you all hungry for the next 45 minutes or whatever. You know, it's like going to CC's and, you know, just, just wanting those, not, not necessarily the pizza, but that, uh, the cinnamon rolls. I mean, those cinnamon rolls are amazing, right? They're to die for, for some people. Some people are like, no, I can, I can leave them. You raising your hand or no, just oh just stretching? Okay, wasn't sure. He's like, can I get an amen? Well, I didn't know what he was talking about there. Uh, you know, other places that we've talked about as well. You know, some people love buffets, some people don't love buffets. But the reason I love buffets is because they're supposed to be endless, right? You're supposed to be able to go back and go back and go back as much as you want. And that's the great thing about Christ. We can go back as much as we want, and He's going to continue to bless us and bless us and bless us and bless us and bless us. And it's never going to run out as long as we're following him and seeking after him. So we have that spiritual buffet of blessings. So the first thing when you look at tonight is this. I am blessed. As a Christian, I am blessed. All the saints should say amen. amen because that's a great thing, right? Understanding that we are blessed and we have everything because of Christ and through Christ. Spiritual blessings are only found in Christ. If you're in Christ, then in God's eyes, you're acceptable, you're made righteous through him. It doesn't matter who you are or who you were. It doesn't matter what you've done. In Christ, God identifies you as one of his own. And there is nothing that he withholds from his own. And that's a great thing. There is nothing that he withholds from his own. You know, sometimes I withhold things from my kids. But God doesn't withhold things from us. And here's the phenomenal truth that I think we hit on last week. If we can't find what we need at his right hand, then we have no need of it at all. Because everything we need is at his right hand. Everything we need is through Jesus Christ. But then this truth continues, what we're really going to focus on tonight. This truth continues in verse number four. Because of being in Christ, we are blessed, but also we are chosen. We are chosen. Again, this is a word that's taken out of context by many. You can look at this word chosen or elect and different things like that. And we'll, we'll talk about it and try not to confuse you tonight. But I was reading some things from Warren Wearsby and some other uh, commentaries today. And Warren Wearsby states on this subject, he said, This is a marvelous doctrine of election, a doctrine that has confused some and confounded others. So that's what we're going to try to dig in tonight. A doctrine that has confused some and confounded others. 
A seminary professor once said to me, to Warren Wearsby, he said, try to explain election and you may lose your mind, <laughs> but try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. So again, we're going to try to explain it tonight and help us understand a little bit more about what it is. And when you study out this verse, we have to study, understand that this verse is all about Christ because the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. We can't save ourselves. No one in here has the power to save yourself. Do you? If you do, then let's talk. But none of us have the power to save ourselves. Only Jesus Christ had the power to save himself, and he is the only one that saved himself. There's a lot of religious systems that are basing their philosophy on a man that is still in the ground. That we serve a Savior that is not in the ground. That he's in heaven today because he is resurrected, because he has conquered death. And as we study this, we have to understand again, who this letter is written to. Paul is writing this letter to those who are already saved. So who are the chosen ones? Does this verse mean that God has chosen some for salvation and others not for salvation? No, it does not mean that at all. You know, Calvinism turns it into an inclusive and an exclusive thing. Inclusive means it's basically available for all. Exclusive means that only some can get it. You know, when you, when you look at, like, memberships sometimes, there are, there are memberships that are very inclusive, which means anyone and everyone can be involved. There are memberships that are very exclusive. When it comes to the gospel, is the gospel of Jesus Christ an inclusive gospel or an exclusive gospel? It's inclusive. What that means is the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, all, the whole world. Paul says in this verse, According as he hath chosen us, what are the next two words? This is very important. In him. According as he hath chosen us in him. Paul says ye are chosen in him. Here's the significance. If you are in Christ, then you've been chosen for a purpose. Now this is where it gets hard to fathom. I'm going to try to do my best tonight. God is omniscient, is he not? That means all-knowing. He knows everything. And, and again, I can't even wrap my mind around being able to know everything. I don't even want to know everything. Sometimes I want to, but then I, I know some things, and I'm like, I don't want to know that. <laughs> but God knows everything. He knows what was going to happen before it happened. Now, as a parent, that would be nice because then you can correct your kids before it happens and, and stop it. But God knows it all. He knows, yes, who is going to accept him, who is going to reject him. He knows it all. And again, sometimes it's hard to fathom. And then because of our, our finite minds, we can't wrap our minds around it. And then we turn to a philosophy that's not even in the Bible. But he created mankind to bring him glory. God is sovereign, which means he's the supreme ruler, the supreme power, the supreme authority. Nothing that happens is outside of God's control. Nothing that happens in our lives or in this world surprises God because of who he is, because he knows it all. He knows that mankind would fall. It's not what God wanted, but because of that, he gave mankind a free will. He knew that mankind would turn from him. So to grasp the significance here, we have to understand that salvation, I want you to get this, it's not in your notes, but salvation was not a reaction. It wasn't, well, they sinned, so I have to do something now. It wasn't a reaction. Salvation was not a reaction. God's plan of redemption was started. Let's look at the verse. Let's continue on in the verse. According as he had chosen us in him, what are the next five or six words? Before the foundation of the world. 
Somebody try to explain it very briefly. What does that mean? Before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created. Yes. She's a theologian over there. Very good. I don't know what seminary she went to, but you all need to go to that same one. Before the foundation of the world means before the world began. How many have ever um, built something? Anybody ever built something? Many of us have built something. And how many have ever uh, been uh, instrumental in maybe building a house? I know Brother Ron has probably been instrumental in building a house. Now, a lot of times in building a house with Ron, did, did you, you know, before the foundation was established, did you have plans drawn up, kind of knowing what you wanted to do? Yeah. Most builders have plans drawn up of what they want to do. In a sense, God had his plans drawn up before the foundation of the world. Before creation ever happened, he knew what was going to happen. He had the master plan, and here's the great thing about God. He didn't change it. Sometimes we change our plans because, oh, I don't like this room here, and this room is too close to my room, and I don't like that, and my kids are going to be up all night. Let's change that. Let's, let's rework some things. But God didn't have to rework anything. Because he's perfect, he's all-knowing. He knew what would happen. So this phrase, uh, before the foundation of the world, is important. Uh, God, here, here, here's, here's a great truth. God made a decision. God gave us a decision to make. And God made a decision in response to our decision, even before it ever happened. God developed this plan before the world began, and this plan has not changed, will not change, doesn't change. He chose us before the creation of the universe. This is significant because it means that our salvation is not on the basis of anything that we can do. Our salvation is strictly on the basis of his grace. We don't deserve him, do we? We don't deserve what he wants to offer us. But God shows us in Christ and not in ourselves. And really, I'm not going to go deep into this tonight, but the first one that he chose was his son <laughs> to fulfill all of this. Here's where we, where we break this, this down of this inclusivity of the gospel, basically saying the gospel is, is for all people. God chose Abraham back in Genesis 18, 18, so that all nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just so that some, but that all nations of the earth be blessed. So, you know, see, he chose him that everyone would, would be blessed through him and, and through Israel. Uh, let's, try to, let's try to break down even farther. Um, God's chosen people were who? The Israelites, right? Uh, they were God's chosen people. Does that mean all of Israelite or all of the Israelite nation, all of those that are Jews, does that mean they're all in heaven today? No, why? They were chosen, right? They were his chosen people, so doesn't that mean they're in heaven? No, it doesn't. Even though they were chosen, they still had to choose as well. That's where the, the sovereignty of God and man's free will come into the equation, both are important. This is important because this is where divine sovereignty and human responsibility come into the equation. Look, Israel was chosen. They were elected to be God's people, but all of Israel is not in heaven because those that are in heaven today are the ones who in turn made the choice to follow him. And we have to make the choice to follow him. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be in him because he wanted all people to be saved. He, he didn't create hell for us. Who was hell created for? Satan and his angels, the devil and his angels. He created heaven for us, for all of the world. He chose us. He wanted all, all man, all mankind to, to come to him. But just because you're chosen doesn't mean you are going to come. You have to 
choose, in, in a sense, to come back. The lost sinner, left of his own, does not seek God. It talks about this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. But that's where God comes in, and that's where Jesus enters in. Because in Luke 19, 10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Let me give you kind of a flawed illustration, and I'll explain why it's flawed here in a minute. Suppose you're lost somewhere, and, and someone you know, someone you love, comes seeking after you to find you. They, they find you, you know, you're in your right mind, you just got lost. You got lost in the woods, you lost some trail, and didn't know where you were, so they, they found you. Does it stop there? No. Now, they could drag you back, they could, but see, God doesn't do that with us. We were lost in our sins. He found us, but then it's up to us to choose if we're going to follow him back to safety. And again, it's a, it's a flawed illustration because, yeah, well, well, we can just force them if they're, if they're not in their right mind or whatever. But if, if, if my son is lost as he gets older and I go and find him and, all right, Nate, we need to, we need to come home. No, Dad, I think I'm just going to stay here. Well, that's on him. Now, I wouldn't let that happen. That's where that flawed illustration is. But... I think you understand the point that I'm trying to make. You see, if the person that is lost is found, that's not the end. They have to make the choice to return to safety. You see, God, though, he doesn't force us. He's not a dictator that forces us to come to him. He gives us the free will. He wants us to willingly accept him because that's what makes salvation so much better. He comes seeking after us to save us. He's chosen us to be in him, but we still have to choose him. Before the world began, God chose us to be in him. But again, this is where sovereignty and human responsibility come in. Both are important. We can't focus on one without focusing on the other. Does the sinner respond to God's grace of his own will? No. A sinner responds to God's grace because God's grace makes him willing to respond. The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in this life because we'll never fully be able to comprehend it. But I want us to go deeper into this verse. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, you see, God chose us for a purpose. He chose those that would choose him for a purpose. What's the purpose? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So if you want to put two words down, I think I have this a little bit later, and you notice the purpose of his choosing is this. He's chosen us to be holy, and he's chosen us to be blameless. You see, this is the missing piece of the puzzle that fits everything together. If you've ever been confused about election, here's the key. The question we are asking now is, why did God choose us? Why did God choose all those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ? He chose us for a purpose, and the purpose was to be holy and blameless. Holy means to be set apart, consecrated to God. Blameless means to be free from sin, dirt, filth, to be above reproach and without blemish, to be without fault and defilement. God chose us to be holy, to be, a, in a sense, a light that is shining so others could see and, in turn, choose him. And we'll hit a little bit more on this here as the message continues. But first of all, we need to understand that I am blessed. Second thing we need to understand is I am chosen. Third thing we need to understand is this. I am adopted. I am adopted. I love this verse. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children... By Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To what are we predestinated to? Adoption. 
What these verses are really doing is showing us just how rich we are in Jesus Christ. The word predestination refers primarily to what God does for saved people. There's nowhere in the Bible where we are taught that people are predestined to hell. This word is for God's people, predestination. The word simply means this, to ordain beforehand, to predetermine. To ordain beforehand, to predetermine. Election seems to refer to people, while predestination refers to purposes. What has been predestinated? Who will be saved and who won't know? What's been predestinated is this, your victory in Christ. And that's an awesome thing. What's been established before the world was your victory in Christ. Let me give you a spoiler alert for those that don't know. If you're a Christian, you're on the winning side. <laughs> you're going to be victorious because Jesus Christ has already been victorious. What's been predestinated was victory in Christ. Predestination is the destiny that has already been determined. Predestination is a statement of security and promise or assurance, not one that limits free will or restricts salvation to a select few. We've been predestined to adoption. Adoption means, or adopted means, to place as a son. Adoption has dual meaning, both present and future. You don't get into God's family by adoption. You get into God's family by regeneration, which is a new birth. It talks about this in John chapter one, or 3, verses 1 through 19, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. But adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones adult standing in the family. And this is where it gets really good. God does this so we might immediately begin to claim our inheritance. You see, we can enjoy our spiritual wealth. A baby can't legally use their inheritance. But an adult son or daughter can and should claim their inheritance. This means there is no waiting until you're an older saint to claim the riches you have in Jesus Christ. As soon as you're saved, you're born into the family of God, but you're also adopted into the family of God. I heard it said that in the eyes of the law, the justice system here in America, that you are legally allowed and permitted to leave your own natural born child out of your will. It's interesting for some of you. You might want to do that. But you are not allowed to leave an adopted child out of your will. So according to the justice system and the law in America, I heard it said, and I, I didn't have time to, to research it, but it was said and stated that you're allowed to leave your naturally born child out of your will, but you're not allowed to leave your adopted child out of your will. You see, there's more security in adoption, but in Christ, we are both born spiritually and adopted, which means we get it all. <laughs> and that's an awesome thing. So first and foremost, we need to understand, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I am blessed. I am chosen. I am adopted. And fourthly, I am accepted. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. But he, by his grace, makes us accepted in Christ. This is our eternal position, and this position will not change. 
Because it's been established before the foundation of the world. Before the world even began, God had a plan, and he hasn't deterred from the plan. And this is the great thing that I, I was thinking about this afternoon as I was really diving into this and studying. And I had to cut out so much of the notes because I, we would have been here all night. And I, don't, I don't think you guys wanted to be here all night. But it, it's an amazing thing when you, when you study this, that I'm accepted. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm made righteous through Christ. My eternal position cannot, will not change. The same purpose and plan that God had a thousand years ago for those that trusted him is the same purpose and plan that he has for us today that trust him. You know, sometimes those that have, that have been parents, you start one way with the firstborn. How many have ever done this? And as the children progress, you maybe lenient or not, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Like, yep. All right, we'll have some counseling right after church and we'll discuss all this, right? No. We've all done that. We've changed the plan because, well, that didn't work. Or we just get tired and forget it, you know, by the time the second or third or fourth or fifth. Do whatever you want. I don't really care. <laughs> That's why we stopped at two. But the thing with God is it hasn't changed because his plan is flawless. Before the foundation of the world, it was established. It was good enough then. This is an eternal position that will not change. This is who I am in Christ, and it is irreversible. It's, there's nothing I can do or achieve. It's nothing I have to worry about losing. I can't lose my salvation if I'm already saved. There's no identity crisis when we realize these fixed values, that I am blessed, I am chosen, I am adopted, and I am accepted. And I want to close tonight by looking at a story of a man who, who was a pastor and fell into sin. I don't know the pastor's name. I was actually listening to a message this week, and and the, the other pastor was talking about this that he had read probably three or four years ago. And uh, I thought it was very fitting to kind of close this lesson out tonight and really kind of look at our series about identity in Christ. About three years ago, three or four years ago, back in 2015, this man lost his ministry and marriage. And I stumbled across this, and, and, he, and he wrote it from his perspective several years later. He said, two things I had come to believe that I thought were secure forever my 21-year marriage, and my calling as a pastor of the church where I pastored. But both came crumbling down during the spring and early summer of 2015. He goes on to say that he talks about the physical and relational and temporal and material losses that he suffered, but then he goes on to say this, but as shocking and as painful as all those losses were, my instinctive response shocked me even more. The rage, the blame-shifting, the thirst for revenge, the bitter arrogance, the self-justified resentment, the dark self-righteousness, the control-hungry manipulation, the deluded rationalization, the deep selfishness, the perverse sense of entitlement. Maybe these disgusting things which flowed from my depths with such natural ease shouldn't have shocked me. After all, I was well known for talking about my messed upness and my faults and my pains. The truth is, though, that we are all very good lawyers when it comes to our own mistakes and very good judges when it comes to the mistakes of others. As one of my counselors told me early on, he said, circumstances don't create the condition of your heart. Circumstances reveal the condition of your heart. And I found that to be true in my own life. He said, what was revealed to me about my heart in those fiery hotness of dire circumstances was scary and destructive. 
this disgusting truth about myself and desperate aloneness that I felt because of it made me want to commit suicide. Here's a pastor, a person that had followed after God. He then goes on through the letter that he wrote before he was about to take his life, and he ended up not taking his life, but he continues on. He says, how did I get to this point of total desperation and arrive at this dark place where actually I wanted to take my own life? Well, I, I see now that what I couldn't see then is that this explosion had been building up for years. The shift from locating my identity in the message of the gospel to locating my identity in my successes as a messenger of the gospel was slow and subtle. It came on like the slow creep of the tide rather than a sudden tidal wave. I painfully learned that the more you anchor your identity and sense of worth in something that is smaller than God, the more pain you will experience when you lose it all. My confidence was severely misplaced. I had confidence in status and my reputation and power and position. The way I spoke, the praise I received, the financial security and success that I had. In other words, confidence in these things that were smaller than God in his grace or the gospel. Confidence in these things that were completely unstable and fleeting and easily taken away. Because I had existentially located my significance in smaller things other than God. My loss did not simply usher in grief and pain and shame and regret. It ushered in a severe identity crisis. Without these things and people that I'd come to depend on to make me feel like I mattered, I no longer knew who I was. I felt dead, therefore I might as well be dead. He said the last two years have been a complete destruction, not just externally, but internally. Learning who God is, what is real, what matters, it has been one of, the, one of pure stripping. It has felt like my skin is being ripped off at my bones. But as painful as it has been, it has also been very liberating. This has been a new freedom from false definitions of who I thought I was. Death before resurrection, dark desperation, precedes deep deliverance. He continues and finishes up. He says, who you really are has nothing to do with you. And that's what I've been saying for weeks now. How much you can accomplish, who you can become, what you've done or failed to do, the size of your church, the size of your sin or behavior, good or bad, or your strengths or weaknesses, your family background, your education, your looks, your identity is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishments and not yours. His strength and not yours. His performance and not yours. His victory, not yours. His gospel doesn't just free you from what other people think about you. His gospel frees you from what you think about yourself. This means that he is the light at the end of a very dark tunnel. And he's not going anywhere. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. And this is what Paul was trying to get them to understand in these verses. And we're going to continue this thought next week because it's just a continuation. That if you're in Christ, you should be identified in him. And in him... We're blessed. In him, we are chosen. In him, we are, anyone? Adopted. In him, we are accepted. If anything, take that. Take that to the bank and say, thank you, God, that I am blessed, that I am chosen, 
Thank you for choosing me because I would have never chosen you because of my sin and my flesh. There's no way I would have. So thank you for choosing me. Thank you for finishing the work of salvation on the cross. Thank you for predetermining that salvation needed to happen. Thank you for allowing me the free will to choose you. And I, and I fear that so many individuals, so many Christians or so many churchgoers, well, I, I've been chosen, so that's, that's all that matters. No, you still have to choose him too. And I'm so thankful that I've been adopted. I'm so thankful I get to enjoy all the blessings because I'm born spiritually into the family of God and I'm adopted in the family of God. And I'm so thankful that I'm accepted. In the world's eyes, I might not be accepted. You might not be accepted. But in God's eyes, you're accepted. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. If I'm blessed and chosen and adopted and accepted, then that rewrites everything about you. And you don't need to compete anymore because your identity is found solely in Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen. Amen.